Blog Talk Radio. Another edition, an exciting edition of Rungan Radio. We are back. What I mean by that is we are back with a guest. We have Woo-hoo! guests again. Woo! And he's a good one. Yeah, we've got good ones all month. Actually, we're missing uh, I think a couple dates, but we got stuff working. So we are uh, excited about that. And then after that, after a few guests, we'll probably get back in gig mode. We like being in gig mode. Yeah. All right, speaking of gigs, Mr. Rungren has some gigs coming up in April. What's up with that cruiser mill? That's pretty soon, actually, just about a month from today. or well, It 30, is a month, yeah, April days. 2nd. Yeah, yep, going to start it up in uh, Inglewood, New Jersey on the 2nd of April. Hope you guys are out there buying your tickets. Buy them, hey, buy them now. Speaking of that show, yeah. if you're on Facebook, we have a... Todd Rundgren Radio uh, Facebook page. and What, like one of those event pages where people can say, oh, I'm going to this show, let's have a meet-up or something? We started an event page on the Rundgren Radio Mm -hmm. Facebook page, yes. And um, you can sign up and join us as a fan, and you can check that out because they're trying to, James, who called in last week, is trying to get together a group for a little pre-show party in an Italian restaurant, I believe. So check it out if you want to. Get with some fellow Todd heads. Very good, very good. All right. Well, if you're if you can't make it to that Inglewood, New Jersey show and pre-show meeting, there are other shows to choose from. The following night, Saturday, the April third, he's going to be in Salisbury, Massachusetts, followed by Sellersville, Pennsylvania, on the fifth. Newark, Ohio, on the seventh, which is near Columbus, I believe. Pittsburgh, PA, on the ninth. That's a Friday gig. Uncasville, Connecticut on the 10th. That is a free gig. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. On the 11th, uh, Ridgefield, Connecticut at the Playhouse there. On the 13th, Alexandria, Virginia. Always a good place. And on Wednesday the 14th, Annapolis, Maryland. And uh, didn't you hear of some rumblings today about another show? I did, but we have some information to share about that, just so you'll be in the loop, and we will set your expectations properly. (laughs) All right, so anyway, today, Chastain Park, which is a great outside venue in Atlanta, where I saw the new cars, actually, they have announced their concert series A, which... Included Hall Notes with special guest Todd Rundgren is what it says on their blog today. So that would be April the 24th. But we do know that that ain't happening unless some more gigs are booked the week, the 10 days between the 14th and the 24th. Right. So Mott's asking about more tour dates. That is the plan. Um, 
Where those are going to be is unknown at this time, but we do know that they are working diligently. Night and, and day, round the clock. Round the clock. As a matter of fact, if they make it work, we will be putting on a couple of Todd Rundgren Johnson gigs, Rundgren Radio. So that'll be fun. Woo. Yeah. So. That's exciting. That's yeah, exciting. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah. So nice. I don't know, Mike, B's asking if it's open or set for Hall Notes. Well, I don't know because it doesn't really say. And Hall Notes could be taking a break, as you all probably heard, uh, T-Bone Wolf. Passed away Saturday with a heart attack. There, Hall and Oates, he's a bass player, but I believe he mostly plays guitar with Hall and Oates now. And um, rest in peace, T-Bone. Yeah, you know, probably things are a little fluid right now because it's, it's been so suddenly. Um, so just stay tuned. But, you know, the rumbling is out there that it, it's going to be Hall and Oates with special guest T.R., that would yeah. be fun. Chastain's a great venue. It's an outdoor venue, right? Yes. Okay, cool. So that's that'll the place be fun. They, where they bring out candelabras and picnic baskets and stuff? Uh, most of the artists allow you to have tables. Yes, they have sections where you have tables and tables for six, and you can bring whatever you want. It's very nice. Nice. Some of the bands are a little picky and they won't let you bring anything, but most of them do. Okay. okay. That's kind of the bonus of going. The only drawback to Chastain Park is that a lot of people want to run their mouths during the shows because it's kind of a big party. Not cool. No. Not cool at all. Wouldn't want to do a Chasm solo gig, that's for sure. <laughs> no, no. Carrie's asking when. She must have been late because I've already said it. April 24th. That is not a guarantee. That is dependent on them getting some more gigs between the 14th and the 24th. So if they get enough, they will go to Atlanta, assuming Hall Oates will be touring at that time, which is over 50 days away. So I got to think by then they'll have things straightened out. Mhm. Mhm. So that's it for that. We got something. It's Todd related. Uh, coming up in May. Kind of a cool thing. A group of musicians in Arlington, Massachusetts, are going to put on a a full Todd tribute show. And it's going to be at the Regent Theater. That's theater with an R-E, the proper way, dot com. You can find out information there about tickets and, you know, who the musicians are. But, I mean, it's kind of cool that, that somebody is wanting to do a, a Todd tribute. Yeah, it's an awesome, it's really a good band. And they it looks like the resume anyway. There's several people in it. They're going to do some utopia stuff, looks like. It's also on trconnection.com's latest news page. There's a whole spiel on it, and it's on our Facebook, of course. Um, but regenttheater.com is the place to get tickets. It's May the 7th. May 7th in Massachusetts. Yes. Oh, there was an interview today on Kendall and Stu's radio show with Kassim that took place December, I mean, February, excuse me, February 6th in London, where he talks a little bit about touring with Todd and his, his you know, experiences with Joan Jett and the like. And if you want to go listen to that, uh, Sue Williams has captured it and put up an MP3. Well, it's actually two MP3s. I think they're about five or ten minutes apiece from the info, uh, interview. And you can find that at chasminfo.com. It's pretty good. I listened to it right before the show. 
or chasminfo.com slash blog.html. Okay. There you go. Always check the blog, always. Always. What do you know, Doug? What's what's up your sleeve? What do you what you got on the next? Well, since next you're talking month. about Mr. Chasm Sultan, who is no longer with Meatloaf, as we announced last week, everybody knew, I think, already. But anyway, croupygear.com uh, or chasmstore.com, kind of same thing in a way. They have some of our merchandise from A Wizard of True Star and some RR stuff, and it is. Officially starting today on sale for 25% off anything you want, including the California AWATS poster. First time it's been on sale. Yay! Yeah, dog. <laughs> so there we go. Check it out, groupiegear.com or chasmstore.com. I think chasm stuff's on sale, too. And they're almost about to run out of uh, quid pro quo CDs, and then they're done. Uh-oh. Yeah. Oh, definitely grab that. Definitely. Yep. Another chasm deal here. We're going to try to rally the troops, so if you're listening, listen good. Yeah, this is good, people. Pay attention. There's a festival called Sunfest in Palm Beach, Florida. I went to it uh, in 2007, I believe it was, when Todd was there with Jerry Murata, John Montagna, and Jesse Gress, that tour. And they're doing it again this year, not with Todd, but they're actually looking for some non- uh, I guess uh, I guess uh, non-signed artist, which Chasm would qualify because he's not under any record contract. So indie groups, I guess. So it's called New Music Night. So if you would, go to sunfest.com slash new-music-night period PHP or just go to sunfest.com and look for it. But New Music Night Put in there that you'd like to see the Chasm Sultan Band, B-A-N-D, add band at the end, and maybe we can get them to get Chasm out there. That'd be great for him. It's it's very crowded. Uh, it's a big deal over there, and it's really nice. I have a big stage and lots of popular bands and different things they do. It would be a great thing for him to get uh, if, in fact, we help him out by pushing for it. And this is in Florida. When, what What's the date of it? Uh, it's at the end of April, 1st of May. It goes for several days. Ooh, that would be a nice time to be in Florida. <laughs> yeah, it's all on their website, sunfest.com, S-U-N-F-E-S-T. It's a really cool event, and he would be a great uh, guest for that deal in the new music night. Sure would. Sure yep. would. All right, let's see. What else do I got? Crucible, you tell me you got somebody looking for a photo, you said. Yes, I did see something on Mike Adrian's blog, which is Todd Rundgren Arena Blogspot.com. There is a fan named Jeff Ravenscraft, who uh, apparently was a big, big Todd head, had lots of collectibles, uh, CDs, DVDs, shirts, whatever. Anyway, he was on tour with Molly Hatchett, and somebody broke into his house, and they took all of his stuff. Uh, well, most of his stuff. Apparently, he owns the the yellow tuxedo fluffy shirt that Todd wore. It's got big white sleeves. He owns that shirt. I, I don't know how he got it, but anyway, he's got the shirt. And he had it autographed by Todd. And he would like uh, to see if anybody out there has a photo of Todd wearing that shirt. And uh, I would assume if you if you... Had a copy of that. 
he didn't he didn't say in the blog piece how to contact him, but I guess if you contacted Mike Adrian, he could probably put you up with this this guy Jeff Ravenscraft. So is this like the Jerry Seinfeld puffy shirt? I do not know. I never watched Seinfeld. <laughs> oh, you're killing me! All I'm, right, so. Let's step this up a little bit. We got a guest on the eighth. We're going we're going to do some Mondays in March. We're calling it, and that's mainly because our guest couldn't be on Tuesday night. So next week we're on Monday, not Tuesday. We have Bill Sputnik Spooner from the Tubes. The following week we're also on Monday with David Levine or David Levine, who was the Rockware dude with Todd, who did the CDI and all that fancy software. We need some tech geeks to call in. Because we're not going to have any clue how to speak to this man, but we're going to make it work and have some fun with it. So that's the 15th, and then we're going to try to do a show on the 22nd, another Monday. We don't have a guest yet. And then right now we're on hold. We may have Michael Shreve, drummer, member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We may have him on the 30th, which will be a Tuesday. So let's just not confirm yet. So anyway, we've got a lot of stuff going on in the future on our shows. We have tentatively scheduled April... Let's see, when did I schedule that? April the 8th for a special announcement. That's a Wednesday about Rungan Radio Birthday Bash 3 and some other things. We're having to push that out. Uh, unfortunately for you folks, you're going to have to wait. Unless we can find a way to get it out earlier, if we can, you'll be the first to know. I believe there was a Utopia song called I Will Wait. Really? One there? Wow. Was it a Todd what? song? Was it a chasm song? Oh no, I, I can't recall right now. <laughs> don't say it if you don't know it. I know, I know. I All know. right, we got four more, three more things. Then we're gonna get our guest is already called in, so we're ready to roll with that here in just a minute. Michelle Rungren has a new Myri up. If you haven't seen this, MichelleRungren.com. That's with one L. MichelleRungren.com, or you can find her on Facebook. And last but not least, a couple plugs. Billy James' book is still available at Amazon.com. It's called A Dream Goes On Forever, Volume 2 of the Continuing Story of Todd Rundgren. This is years 78 through 88. It's a damn good read. Get it and get it now. If you don't have it, what are you waiting on? And speaking of books, there's blurb.com slash Todd Rundgren. That's where Jay Bloomrosen has his photo books from A-Watch shows. All of the shows in the United States and a new Best Of book are available and that reminds me, there's also the USB sticks from the London and Amsterdam gigs at concert-online.com. There's been mixed reviews, but I've got this hunch, I'm about to try to prove it, that people that got them earlier at the shows, they weren't as good, they weren't mixed as much as the ones who got them later in the mail, like myself, because my sound is good, and other people are saying not so good. So you can also download it now. Uh, I think it's even cheaper if you do it that way. Just download it into your computer. You can purchase the the songs or the whole deal. And it includes the Johnson set except for London's Missing Two Songs, the first two, I believe it is. So that's a wrap, Cruiser Mel. That's a wrap? That's a wrap right. on announcements. Wow. We got through that pretty quickly. Yay! There go. Let's welcome our guest, Mr. Ralph. Hey, how you doing? We're you doing there? great. Everybody, this hey. is... Ralph Legnini, and I don't even know where to begin to introduce you, except <laughs> you are a musician, a producer, a songwriter. You're the head of E-Boy Music, a music production company in Woodstock, New York, and your resume is longer than my arm is. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sitting in my studio right now in West Shokan, which actually 
is very similar to the studio that Todd had on New Collar Road, except it doesn't have the upstairs loft. What's going on with that studio, by the way, in uh, Mink Hollow Studio? Is it still there? Uh, well, as far as I know, a guy bought the house a number of years ago, well after Todd moved away, and uh, he kind of gutted the whole place, and it was a very rustic house inside, and he brought in all this Italian marble tile and stuff like that. It just didn't seem to go with the country vibe. So he <laughs> totally changed the whole thing, and he was going to make the um, – he was going to make a whole studio there. He was going to make it a gym, which was very unfortunate. But, uh, you know, time goes on and buildings change and people change, and, and, and that's what happened. But I heard recently that the whole house was a foreclosure. And I don't know any details, but the guy who bought it apparently, you know, who went up for foreclosure, and uh, I don't know what's, what's going on there right so now, he, you know. He bought it, mucked it up, and then foreclosed on it. That's <laughs> There's no equipment, I guess, in the studio. Then <laughs> there wasn't. No, we, after Todd, uh, after actually Todd sold it to the guy, uh, we had an agreement where we kept the equipment in the studio for about a year, and Todd would still fly out and we would do some uh, productions there. And then at the end of the year, we had to get the equipment out, and we moved it all into uh, the old Utopia Video Studio. Uh, which wasn't being used that much at that point. So we moved it all into the old control room for the video studio, and Todd did uh, an album or two there with it set up, and then um, it just seemed like it didn't make sense anymore. So, uh, and he was pretty much based in Hawaii, so you know, the, the, some equipment got sent in Hawaii, some got sold off, and, uh, and that was the, uh, the end of it. But it's interesting, it kind of came full circle back to the... Uh, the video studio that he and Albert Grossman uh, put together many years ago when I first met him. Hmm. Cool. So that studio project that he did, apparently, things I've read, he put a lot of money into it that he had made off the Bat Out of Hell album and things. Was that a good investment, you think, at the end of the day? The video studio? Yeah. Well, you know, Todd Todd was really into doing video. He was doing it before anyone else was was doing it. And... Um, so he yeah, he got that chunk of money and he put it into the studio. Albert built the uh, building for him, and he leased it, the building from Albert. So they kind of partners on that level with it. Todd bought the equipment, and uh, he got this great video engineer, Woody Wilson. Uh, and uh, you know, at the time it was there, it was you know pretty much state of the art at that at that time. And uh, you know, Todd did a lot of things there with Utopia and himself, and he did some other artists did videos for them. And I think. Uh, at that point, Todd was doing videos before MTV was on the air. And like everything, Todd approached it as an artist. And I think what happened, in my opinion, was that when MTV kind of got going and, he, and all the videos came out and the ZZ Top stuff with all the girls and bikinis and all the, 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 the videos became commercials for songs. And it kind of was not an art piece anymore. And I think, uh, you know, I think at that point, Todd maybe lost, some interest in the whole medium and where where it was going, and uh, also it was difficult because the video studio was, you know, it was two and a half hours or so from New York City. So uh, Paul Mosgan was the studio manager, and it was hard for him to bring in other clients. You know, on days Todd wasn't using it to keep you know money coming in because a lot of people were using facilities in New York, 
And unless it was a long-term project, people didn't want to come up for one day or two days to do a, a commercial or, you know, video shoot in the, in the facility. And, uh, you know, then eventually uh, I think the equipment started getting, you know, newer stuff, new gear came out, and Todd just didn't seem like as gung-ho with the whole thing uh, anymore at that time. So, uh, you know, I think it served its purpose at the time, and I think Todd, you know, had a, a playground there to do everything and anything that he wanted to do, and we had a crew there that was, you know, ready to do everything. Some of some of our crew was professional, and some of it was just, <laughs> you know, people off the uh, off the street pretty much. And that's and that's pretty much how I got involved and uh, in how I met Todd was uh, my girlfriend at the time, Mary Lou Arnold, and I were musicians up in Woodstock, and uh, we had heard that Todd Rundgren was doing this video studio. And we went over there one day, and she was looking for work, and I remember she walked in the door and talked to someone there, and they said, oh, you want to work? Here, go hang these lights. And she started, <laughs> yeah. and I think she worked for about two weeks straight on a, on a video at that point after just kind of walking in off the street. And um, so she was kind of in the right place at the right time, I guess, you know, because mm -hmm. I don't know what she was in for with a long, uh, for the long haul. You still know, kicking, so, yeah. She's still Yeah, still exactly. Did you say so, she was uh, your girlfriend? She was my girlfriend. We eventually got married, yes, but uh, then we, we split up a number of years ago. I did not know that. Ah, scoop, yeah. buddy, scoop. <laughs> is, that your, is, that D, is that your daughter, her daughter? No, no. Okay. No, uh, Deja was uh, about 11 years old when I first met Mary Lou. Oh, okay. Yeah, definitely not then. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. Well, we've had Mary Lou on with our Mary Lou, of course. Um, sure, because yeah. I'm look I'm looking forward to talking about some of those electronic projects like CDI and everything, but um, some of that stuff you were probably around for. But I know we want to get started first with kind of what you're doing now and yeah. a little bit about um, e-boy music, and, and uh, we like to start first with the current stuff before we start delving into the past. Okay. Well, um, I have a production company called e-boy music, and I'm producing records for people. Um, and uh, what I'm doing lately is, is quite interesting to me because uh, years ago in the 50s, people did singles. People didn't really do albums. You know, you did three, two, you had a single, follow up with another single, another single, and then you threw them on an album with some filler. And then later on in the 60s, all those bands that we love with the Who sellout album and the Beatle Revolver uh, album um, and, you know, Simon Garfunkel bookends, people were doing albums that were records that played from beginning to end that had a certain flow, had a certain taste. They weren't just all hit singles thrown together. And then after that, in the, you know, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it kind of went back to the record companies wanting you to have, you know, five hit singles that could even be done by five different producers and let's get them out there and go up the charts. And the records, again, lost the continuity from beginning to end, except, you know, some, for some artists, but generally speaking. And then I think then it reached a point where artists could do their own records. If they couldn't get a record deal, you could go buy equipment or you could go into studio, do your own record, and make a CD, which is what everyone has been doing for the last, you know, 10 years or more. But what I see going on now is that a lot of people, it's hard to get a record deal nowadays, so a lot of people are doing their own stuff, putting it out there. You can market and promote it on the Internet very well. On the CD Baby and Big Station and iTunes, you could get all your stuff up there. But the thing is, a lot of people do a record spending, you know, tens of thousands of dollars still self-financing it, and then they get, you know, they order 2,000 CDs from Oasis or 
disc maker, and then they sell 500 to family and friends, and they have a box of, you know, 2,000 sitting there forever. Because it's really hard to sell, you know, CDs. You've got to really know what you're doing and work it once you get past your immediate core group. So my feeling now and is that uh, I'm advising people as a producer myself to not think in terms of doing a whole record anymore. I don't see any reason to follow that model anymore. And what I'm doing with people and advising them to do is let's take your best song or your best two songs. Let's take the two that maybe have the most, most user-friendly, listener-friendly, the ones that could get you immediate attention. And I'm putting together this whole all-inclusive fee to do a whole song with unlimited studio time with great musicians, session players, and with mastering from Emily Lazar at the Lodge in New York City, who's a world-class uh, master. And then I partnered with this guy, Jordy Gillespie, from Unleashed Music, and he's got this whole marketing company, because he used to be head of promotions for Sony Music and Disney Music. Wow. And uh, so now this artist will do these one or two songs, and it will have an afterlife because it will go to Jordy, and he will have a conference with them, listen to the music, and he'll get it to the radio stations in that genre, and he'll have a game plan how to promote this and how to maybe get licensing deals for the artists because people now are making money licensing their songs for all TV, films, and things like that. And if the artist gets one or two songs out there and makes a little buzz and gets a nice licensing deal, it'll more than pay for what they spent on doing this one or two songs with me. So I'm offering the artist more of an afterlife for that product, not just like do, do a whole CD, spend thousands of dollars and let it, you know, the bulk of it sit in boxes and get... So, so it's more of an EP in a sense, but half of the size of an EP is usually four songs, right? Exactly, yeah. So I'm, I'm saying let's pick your best one or two songs and, you know, I'll give you a price where you know exactly what it's going to cost and if you want Jerry Murata to play drums, I could get Jerry Murata for this amount of money. If you want Sarah Lee to play bass, we'll get Sarah Lee to play bass and put it all together, a whole package for the for the artist. And I think it's a real way where the artist feels like there's something going to happen with their music after above and beyond what they could do themselves for it. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Well, do they, does the artist choose the couple of songs they think are their best, or do you choose it, or how does that come about? Well, like any producer, you get together with the artist and you go through all the material and you, you know, you you put your heads together and find out what the artists like, what you like, and uh, you know, we all know that a lot of artists did not give you know, a song that for a lot of artists that made them famous was a song that they may they may not have necessarily even wanted on their record. Mm-hmm. You know, the song "Girls Just Want to Have Fun" with Cindy Lauper and her attorney told me years ago that she didn't want that song on the record. You know, she fought them tooth and nail. Now. So sometimes the artist knows what should be on the record, and sometimes they maybe don't know because they're so close to the material, they have different feelings wrapped up in each song. And sometimes you need an outside opinion uh, for that. But, it, you know, it's a joint effort between the producer and the artist usually to pick a song. But since I'm going to pass it on to uh, Unleash Music and give it an afterlife, I wanted to feel I could get a song that has potential for what, can be done, you know, on the back end with with the song and for the artist, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm really excited about it. Oh, you, go ahead. Are these two songs that are going to be like on a on a, a piece of plastic CD type deal, or are they going to be something you download? How do you market them? Well, you, well, you can have a choice. You know, if, if the artist feels like they need product to sell at a at a gig, they could, uh, you know, press up the two songs on a CD and sell it at a gig for like five bucks. 
you know, I, I feel like someone could go to a gig and just want some product and maybe more apt to take $5 out of their pocket than to take $10, $15 out and buy a, a whole CD. So just kind of condensing things into like a mini version of what people are doing, but give it more potential to grow. And then if someone has success with those one or two songs and gets a licensing deal, makes some money, then we'll come back and we'll, uh, we'll do more. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with Paul Freeman or not. He's a new up-and-coming guy, and he had um... – Open for Todd Summit. He had about a four or five song EP, and after the show, after his part of the show, he would stand by the merch counter, and people could come meet him and everything, and buy it for like five bucks. And he was selling those things hand over fist. It was amazing. Oh, exactly. I know for myself, you go hear a band you like it, but the CD is fifteen bucks, and go, oh, I don't know if I want to buy it or not. But you know, people will take five dollars out of their pocket because it's, you know, you can, that's what a beer costs. You know. Exactly. And, uh, what I was thinking. <laughs> So a beer or music? A beer or music? It's a tough choice sometimes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but it's an exciting thing. I'm working with this artist now who's who calls himself TH. His name is Tom Holland. He's a great songwriter and uh, and singer. And we're doing uh he went a little max out from what I was suggesting. We're we're doing six songs together, and uh, you know we have some great players on it. Cindy Cashdar on slide guitar, Becky Brindle on slide guitar, Mike Smith on harmonica. And Jay Young is going to play on it. Rob Sabino, who toured with Todd, you familiar with that name? Uh, he toured with playing keyboards. Yeah, he's my old buddy, best man, godfather of my children, and uh, he's in San Francisco area now. And he played uh, keyboards on it. And uh, you know, it's exciting for me as a producer to work maybe one or two songs with a lot of different artists because when you do a whole record, uh, you know, it's a long haul. You know, you. you it takes me, every producer is different, but for me it takes me about 50 hours, I think, on each song from pre-production to I finally mix it. And that starts adding up hours in time, you know. Yeah. Uh, I try to learn from Todd how to do things quicker, but... <laughs> well, you read a magazine. But, yeah. but everything's got, everyone's got their own, everyone's got their own pace. Everyone, you know, I've worked with a lot of different yeah. producers myself, and everyone's got a different, a different way. It's, it's like there's no rule. You know, and, and it's, it's like uh, everyone's got their own taste and, and the way that they was comfortable working. You know. So let's say that I'm a good singer because I, I can't sing uh, healing very well, right, Chris? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's and I just, come to you. <laughs> I think we should just say you're a good singer. Okay, well, so let's pretend I'm a good singer, and I say, okay, I want Ralph. I want to do a, a, this song. It's really good, and I want Kate Pearson and Todd Rundgren to be background singers. I want Sarah huh? to play bass, and I want Jerry Murata to play drums. Uh-huh. And I want the keyboardist to psychedelic first. Can you make it happen? Uh-huh. Well, I can make some of those things happen. So the, the people you mentioned who are session players, I can make happen. The people like Kate Pearson or Todd Rundgren, that's a little more, that's a more, a little more tricky uh, to do. Though I have done a lot of stuff with Kate Pearson in the studio, and we do stuff back and forth. And uh, Todd was very gracious to, uh, to play on a record that I recently did, and, uh, and that, was, uh, that was really awesome. Uh, but, you know, I can't get... Todd Rundgren to play guitar on your record because actually, in my memory, it's it was very rare that Todd played on uh, on someone else's record. I don't really remember that happening very often. I think there's one time I remember him going up to Bearsville Studios because there was a band there whose name I can't remember. They were big Todd fans and they were they really wanted him to play a solo and, and he did go up there and uh, and spend some time doing it for them. Uh, but that doesn't happen. All the time, does it? I mean, you can't remember anything really that time. So it'd be more session musicians, like a Jerry Murata, John Montana. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. You know, all, all, all you know, most of those people live in Woodstock area, and a lot of these guys and girls. And my my friend Sarah Lee was right down the road, actually yeah, walking distance. Like 
and she was on your show not too long ago. Yeah, she's and, great. Um, she, she called me up. Well, actually, she stopped by right when she was leaving for the tour, and uh, she's like, what's Todd like, you know? Is, is he going <laughs> to like me? <laughs> so what would you say? <laughs> I said, sure, he's going to like you. I said, you know, people when when, when Todd was producing people's records, I remember Jill Sobey saying, does Todd like me? I don't know if he likes me. I said, of course he likes it. If he didn't like you, he wouldn't be producing your record. And if he didn't like you, Sarah, he wouldn't ask you to play bass on his tour, you know? And yeah, well, Jill uh, and Todd are about to do a song together. They just agreed to that last week. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So they're back in Absolutely. business. But you mentioned that's the album really Todd was on, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about this because it's, it's um, I guess, a uh, charitable effort uh, would be the proper term for it. And it was, you know, it really wasn't publicized we caught wind of it probably a little late and got it out as much as we could but there wasn't a lot of you know from todd's camp and i understand why you don't want to pat yourself on the back for doing charity work and whatnot but he had um was on this album somewhere else tell us a little bit about that album and how that came about uh well the somewhere else record you know it all revolved around uh a local teenager whose name is uh was killing mansfield and um killing that cancer and uh, he passed away at the young age of 16. Uh, and he was like an extremely talented musician and artist. Uh, and I knew that, and I was giving him uh, bass lessons and ukulele lessons. And, you know, he reminded me a lot of me when I was the same age, uh, just really enamored with music and trying to learn an instrument and having raw talent that you're trying to, develop and you're trying to take it all in and, and play all the time and get better and better and learn about music theory and learn how to improvise and you know just like the joy in your life was music and uh, but I knew since he was so sick and at at, at one point the, the prognosis was very bleak and I, I just felt he wouldn't be able to fulfill his full musical potential over a number of years, like I've had the opportunity to do, like other people have had the opportunity to do, because you learn as a musician as you or experience certain situations. I, I really feel strongly that a lot of session musicians may not necessarily be more talented than like a really good local bar band musician, but the session musician had opportunities to get in particular situations with other players where they really grew and they're in the studio and they learned how to do it and they got better at it and got really confident. And it, it, you know, it takes experience and time and, and being in the right situation to get yourself up to those different levels. And I, I felt like Killing was, since he was so sick, that he was not going to be able to, unfortunately, fulfill his full potential over a number of years. And uh, so I approached him and his family about doing a record with him. And my intent was to throw him into the deep water musically, so to speak, uh, so that if his short life was going to be reduced and condensed into 16 years, I wanted to cram a rich, incredible musical interactive experience for him into his last uh, eight months or so here. And, uh, and that's what we did. And uh, it started out really simple. Um, it started out with one song, and uh, it grew to, I think, 13 songs. And uh, Killian... Uh, you know, I said to him, look, we could do whatever. You know, he and I could sit around playing ukulele duets. Um, I was hoping maybe he would want to write some songs. Maybe he'd bring some friends on board. And he thought about it. And he was an amazing kid. He was a very deep thinker. 
uh, he looked like he was about a half a head taller than me, which isn't saying much. And, <laughs> and, um, and he kind of like long hair and he was very handsome and he looked kind of like a, like a little young mini rock star, though he didn't fancy himself to be a rock star. You know, he, he wanted to be a musician's musician. And, um, and I said, look, you know, let's do whatever. And he thought about it and he said, well, I want to do all these songs. And he came over with a list of songs, like 10 songs. They're all cover songs and they all varied from uh, stuff like Girl from Ipanema, which you would never think a 15-year-old would pick as a song. Blue Sky is an Irving Berlin song. And, um, and the other songs like Starman, David Bowie's Starman, and uh, Express Yourself, that one came on board later on. Um, and he had, so he had a list of songs he liked, and what what they were, and I didn't realize it at first, was that he was doing uh, what they would call uh, integrative therapies, which I didn't know much about. But in the cancer treatment he was going through, uh, there was a Hope and Heroes Foundation, and they helped kids use integrative therapies in their treatment. So they were incorporating acupuncture, massage, dance, martial arts, uh, along with traditional uh, treatment to help kids through what they were going through. And, you know, when you go into that whole thing that, that Kelly went through where he had cancer and had surgery and chemo, radiation, and went into remission and it came back and then he had more surgery and then it came back. I mean, God knows what that's like. I mean, God knows what that's like for anybody. I think it's easier if you know you're 80 years old and lived a long life. But when you're 15 years old, I mean, how do you deal with that stuff? I mean, I just don't know. I mean, right. he's really the bravest, bravest kid I ever met in my life, the bravest person I ever met in my life. So, um, you know, he's going through all this stuff, and he wanted to uh, help other kids. He didn't just want to, like, let's just, yeah, let's just play ukuleles. He said, I want to help other kids. You know, maybe we could do an album that, you know, if it makes a profit selling it, then we could put the money over, you know, through this, to help kids use integrative therapies. So to do that, we knew that we had to, you know, if Killy and I just did ukulele duets, maybe no one would buy the record, you know, uh, except friends and family. So we knew we had to get other people on board and uh, went about doing that. And uh, a lot of the people on the record um, are friends of mine for, you know, some of them for decades. Uh, almost everyone on the record is someone that, you know, I've, I've worked with, recorded with, played with, been in a band with, you know, toured with. And um, so, uh, you know, I called called up my friends, basically, told them what I was doing. Uh, Killing gave me the song titles, and he had ideas for each song. You know, I'd want this to, to be bluegrassy, this one to be rock and rolly, this one to be this way. We we tried to do every song, because we had a lot of discussions as we get going. We wanted to do every song, even though they were covers, we wanted to do a different version of them. And we knew we wanted it to revolve around the ukulele, which he loved. And I was playing ukulele. It was my first instrument that my grandfather taught me when when I was a little kid, like five, six years old. So I was always enamored with the ukulele. And I generally played the baritone ukulele. He played a soprano ukulele. And so we wanted to incorporate all the ukulele into all these songs. And uh, we wanted it to be, you know, continuity from song to song, even though you know, we're doing a song like Prince's Kiss, and then we're doing an Irving Berlin song after that, and a you know song like Scratch My Back, an R&B song, you know, a song like Starman. And um, so it was, it was an interesting record to pull off. It was, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of logistics 
to, to plan. Uh, I try to uh, schedule the people at, you know, at times where Killian could be here because right. a lot of the time he was in the city getting treatment. Um, and sometimes I worked out, sometimes it didn't. But I was able to put him in a few situations, like with John Sebastian, where it was just me, Killian, and John sitting around in a little circle in my studio all mic'd up. And uh, we rehearsed uh, Fish and Blues, which John recorded with the Love and Spoonful many years ago. And uh, and we sat around Killian and played ukulele, and John and I played guitars. And we uh, rehearsed the track for oh, gee, an hour, two hours, having a fun time. Killian was, like, beaming. And uh, and then we cut the track a few times. We liked it and set up a mic for Johnny to this vocal right then and there. And then after that, I would proceed, you know, with every song, you know, adding all the instruments as I felt uh, felt necessary. I also was able to get Killing a Situation with Levon Helm, where we went up to Levon's studio, and we recorded a song called Fire in My Pocket, which I wrote for the occasion. And uh... <laughs> I was going to ask, in fact, about that song, um, because I've got a, a, a little... Uh, snippet from that song about a minute's worth because it's, it's uh-huh. really good um, in fact I'm going to play it and then we will talk about a particular line that is repeated over and over in that song if that's okay okay sure let me tell you let me tell you who's on before you play it Levon okay. Helms, Helms playing drums and uh, singing backup vocals with his daughter Amy and Amy's son is also there screeching in the background so is um, Levon's dog and Killian's mom, Barbara Mansfield, who's a really great singer. She's singing backups, too. Uh, Killian's playing ukulele. Uh, I'm playing the guitar and bass, and, uh, and it's sung by, well, it's sung by me and the Bridges, and it's sung to my good buddy, Jim Traitline, who's a phenomenal singer and performer uh, from down in Long Island who has a band called the Pontiacs, and um, I got him in to sing uh, the lead uh, for, for the bulk of the song, and uh, and that's pretty much it on that record. That was the last song we did for the record, and we did it a week before my scheduled mastering date. So I had to get it all together in one week and get it down to Emily Lazar and Joe Laporta oh, well, to so, master it's it. It's really good. It's really good. And I want to tell everybody out there who is a, a diehard Todd fan, which a lot of our listeners are, you need to pay close attention to the lyrics here because I think you're going to like it. All right, everybody hold on, and we're going to listen to about a minute of Fire in My Pocket. ukulele chord at the end there. <laughs> right, right. That sort of sounded a bit like a Todd Rundgren song. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Well, that's interesting. in the lyrics, at least. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I well, I had written that song because uh, I was playing uh, up at Levon's one of Levon's rambles, opening up for him uh, with the band uh, that I that I was in, and uh, and I wrote that song to do with the band, and uh, we couldn't get it together in the time to do it up there. So then, what happened was Killian wanted Levon to sing Big Rock Candy Mountain. You know that song, that traditional kids yeah. song, and I actually cut the track with uh, Jay Unger and Molly Mason. And Jay is a phenomenal fiddle player who lives near me, a Grammy winner, um, and uh, an awesome guy. And we cut the track, and then uh, we sent it up to Levon. And then his, uh, his daughter Amy called me and said, you know, can we just, uh, you know, Levon just doesn't feel like that song is right for him to sing. So, uh, he's, so she said, well, you know, he wants to do something, maybe we'll do something else. So I was trying to get Levon to do something on the record from early on, from like November, and we finally did it. I think it was like May. We finally were able to, a lot of things happened where it didn't work out, didn't work out, didn't work out from both sides, and we finally booked it Thursday afternoon. So Killian and I went up there. We did, we, I had played Killian the song the day before, and he loved the song. He felt it was about music and redemption and feeling good about music and you know, make music being a special thing in your life. And so we went up to, to Levon's, and we sat on the, his couch there in his studio, and he said that, you know, well, maybe we could do a blues, you know, we could just jam on a blues. And I said, you know, well, the, the album's really uplifting, and, you know, I don't feel like a blues would be appropriate. He said, well, you got anything? I said, well, you know, I do have the song um, we were considering. So he said, well, play it for me. So here I am sitting on a couch like two feet away from, you know, one of the, you know, one of my old idols from when I was a kid, one of the most amazing singers in the whole world. And he said, play it for me. So I took my guitar out and I'm sitting right next to Levon and I played him the song from the beginning to end, <laughs> sang it and played it. And he loved it. He says, oh, that's a good one, Ralphie. Let's, let's do it. And that's how it happened. So we were right there in the studio. We went, uh, he sat behind his drums um, Justin Gipp, his engineer, set up uh, a little uh, section for Killian and his ukulele and a little section for me and acoustic guitar. And uh, we did the song. Uh, we rehearsed it. We did a few takes. And at the time, Killian, and the poor kid, was in such tremendous pain because his cancer had spread to the bones uh, in his right arm, his strumming arm for his ukulele. And I knew, I knew how hurting he was. Uh, and, and even at that time, I mean, a week before he came up from the city, he came over to the studio, which he loved to, you know, he just loved to get here. And he was walking out of the car, and he knew I had a cold the week before. I had, had a head cold. And he's going through all this stuff, and he gets out of the car and says, Ralph, how are you feeling? I feel bad for you. I heard you were sick. And it's just like, man, you know, this kid's got this serious stuff going on inside, and he's worried about, you know, that I had, you know, a sort of sneezing for a couple of days. And that's the kind of kid he was, you know. So um, anyway, he was hurting, strumming the ukulele. His mom was there administering, you know, pain, serious pain medication to him. But she had the decision if she gave him too much, it would, you know, he'd doze off. So she had to figure out how much to give him for the pain, but not so so it'd still be able to function. Um, so we did two takes. We liked the second one. We went up to the control room, leaving a, we listened to it. And Riva and I agreed that we could do one more better. And we went down. I said, Killian, you got one more take in you. 
because this whole record, I think what he liked was that I never treated him like cancer kid, which he said, are you, t- are you telling me you like my vocal because I'm cancer kid? And I said, no, I, you know, I, I wouldn't tell you like anything if it were, anything was really good, you know. And he respected that I didn't cut him any slack and, and really tried to, to push him to do his best work, like, like you would, like any producer would do, any artist. But, uh, but I wasn't cutting him the slack because he was a 16-year-old boy or because he was sick. I said, we're going to make a record. You're going to, make, you're going to do your best work, and everyone's going to hear it and know that, you know, how wonderful it was. Um, so anyway, he said, no, I could, do, I could do another take. And we did the take, and, uh, and that was the one. And then the thing was, we, we kind of wanted Levon to sing the song, but Levon himself was a, had throat cancer a number of years ago. And, uh, you know, it was early in the day. It was, you know, it was hard for him to... Uh, just some days it's hard for him to sing. And, um, and he liked the way I sang it. So he said, no, Ralphie, you sing the song. So now it came time to do the vocal. So I'm standing at the mic, and Levon's like a foot away from me, coaching me as I'm singing the song, like whispering in my ear, okay, when this comes up, sing this part, sing it. And so he did a couple of takes like that and got a vocal down. And then we put a microphone in front of Killian, and he did all those uh, – background vocals that you hear in the back, which were really, really, really cool. I think he did a, a couple of takes, and, and Levon and I were sitting over behind Levon's drum on a little uh, on a little bench there, and we were just uh, kind of beaming watching Killian. He was, like, so into it with headphones on, dancing around a little bit, and you're thinking, you know, here's this poor kid going through everything he's doing, and he's having a, you know, a joyous day, you know, singing what a, what a dream and recording. Comes- I mean, for anybody to be able to play with with you know music's legends and and it's for their own album, so to speak. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a dream come true. Well, yeah. I mean, it was it was thrilling for me to record with Levon Helm, you know. Um, so, you know, and I I've been around the block, you know. Uh, yeah, it must have been really great for Killian to to do that. I'm sure he, uh, you know, I I know he loved it. He had a, he had a great day. It was it was so much fun. And Let me Levon's ask. An, did, awesome, did, Levon's just an awesome guy, you know, just to do this. Incredible. Yeah. Did, did Killian? I mean, I don't know another way to ask this question, but did he ever get to hear the finished product? Yes, he did. Uh, well, we finished that song, and then I took it back to my studio, and from the session, I kept the drums and the and the ukulele. I redid my guitar, and I had my vocal on it, and then my wife heard it, and she said, "You know who would sing this song?" He says, you sing this song really, really good, Ralph, and I love the way you sing on the bridges, but you know who could really sing the verses like a Tom Waits vibe? And I said, who? He said, you know, she said, Jim Traitline. So I called Jim up, and he came up, and he sang the song, and he loved it, and he sang it. And, uh, and then I mixed it, and I got the whole record down to Emily Lazar and Joe LaPorta at the Lodge, who donated the entire mixing for the record, which is usually, you know, four or $5,000, and they were so generous to, uh, you know, I asked, there are people who, who master all my records, and I asked, told them what we were doing. I thought we could get maybe get a good price, and they comped the whole thing, which was truly amazing. And then, so then it got it. Then it got sent. In the interim, around that time, we were offered a record deal for the record by um, 429 Records, the label that Dr. John is on, and uh, they're they're part of the Savoy label group. So the record had to go out to to their manufacturing plant, and we were pressed for time. Killing was helpless, was going downhill. He was in hospice. And, you know, by a little miracle, 
from God, I suppose. We uh, we got the shipment of CDs. Uh, I think Killian got them maybe a, less than a week before he passed on. And oh, so, right. you know, I know he got to hold the finished thing in his hand. And uh, the whole record for me was uh, a race against time to finish it because I wanted him to uh, to see it. And then Killian wanted the record to benefit these kids in the uh, integrative therapies program, which uses alternative therapies to help kids. And I don't know if he realized, his family realized that what I was trying to do was do, you know, I didn't know about all that stuff. I'm just a guy from the Bronx who does music. But what I was trying to do was, through music, do my own version of integrative therapies on Killian. Yeah. Because that gave him something to look forward to and something to do while he was going through all, you know, all the stuff he was going through. Right. So, um, um, are the sales of, uh, I know the sales of that album were, were really good um, early, well, late in 09, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. uh, is it still for sale on Amazon or something? Yes, the, the, it's, uh, it's out on 429 Records. And the way, maybe the best way to, to find out more information is to go to the 429 Records uh, website and you will see the, the record there as one of their releases. And if you click on it, you go to a page, a web page, you know, about the record. And right on that page, there's a bunch of links. You'll get a link to the Killian Mansfield Foundation, which is a foundation that Killian set up before he died, um, to, which will be, you know, benefit the kids through integrative therapies. And you can read all about, you know, Killian and his whole story uh, through that. And there's also links to uh, press that we've had for the, the record. And um, so that's probably your place to go. And on there, you'll see that it's available on Amazon. If you just go to Amazon and type in somewhere else, Killian Mansfield, the album will come up. You could get it as a digital download or as a physical uh, CD. And you could also get it on iTunes. And also on the uh, 429 page, you could listen to all the, all the songs. Ah, okay. You, you spoke earlier about the song Starman. And uh, <laughs> I did upload the entire version of this because... It it is pretty special. Uh, you've got a ton of people playing on that, and why don't you uh, introduce that song, and then we'll we'll uh, play the whole song, which is about four and a half minutes or so. Okay. And uh, uh, what's the well, what's the backstory on that? Well, it's an interesting story because uh, that was one of the songs Killian wrote down on the paper, uh, you know, the first day he came over to talk specifics about what he would like to do, and. Um, you know, he basically wanted to do a ukulele version of Starman. So, you know, we had to figure out, you know, who was gonna who's gonna sing it. And Killian, we went through a bunch of different people in our heads talking about it. And then Killian one day decided that he wanted my daughter Lucia Magnini to sing it. Now, my daughter is now well, she'll be 12 in a couple of weeks, so she was about 10 almost 11 when she sang the song. She's been in the studio since she was a little kid. She puts on headphones and, you know, does a couple of takes, tell me she wants, tells me she wants to punch in the third line, you know, <laughs> and pretty much bosses me around. And when she's done, she tells me I'm done. <laughs> so yeah. she knows her way around as a singer, knows how to sing on a microphone. So Tilly wanted her to sing the song, and he wanted his sister, Callie Mansfield, who's also a really good singer, to... Uh, to sing, you know, along with her at different spots on the song. And 
And so, you know, we made that happen. And what I tried to do, interestingly enough, and I think some David Bowie fans would probably pick up on it, a lot of the people that I asked to play on the track were people who had some sort of relationship with David Bowie. Rob Sabino, who's toured with Todd, uh, he played all the piano and keyboards and synthesizer bass on the Let's Dance album for David Bowie that Nile Rodgers produced. Gail Ann Dorsey, who's an amazing singer and bass player, she was David uh, Bowie's uh, touring bass player. And let's see, we have uh, also on there, Sham Morris and Molly Farley. Sham Morris and I were, and Molly were in a band called Dynamojo, which was originally the Nick Ronson band. Nick Ronson was David Bowie's guitar player we were buddies with, and the Nick Ronson band morphed into Dynamojo. So, you know, we got a bunch of people on there that played with uh, Bowie. We also have John Ashton from the Psychedelic Furs, who I met when Todd produced the Psychedelic Furs album, eventually moved to Woodstock, and we've, we've been good friends ever since. We have Jules Shear, who Todd produced the Watchdog album for Jules, which is a brilliant album, I think. And we also have uh, a couple of people you may not know of, like Todd Rundgren and Kate Pearson from the B-52s on, on this track as well. And Eric Parker plays drums, who toured with Joe Cocker and Bonnie Raitt. Um, so we have, uh, we have a nice, we have a kind of nice lineup on this. Now, how Todd played on it, I guess that's the, the question maybe a lot of Todd fans would like to know. Uh, uh, I recorded a, another track for this record called um, Love and My Food that uh, Robert Burke Warren wrote. And I sang the song for the record, and then Kate Pearson came over from B-52s, and she sang it uh, as a duet with me. And we did that song the day before Christmas Eve two years ago. She came over to the studio. And that night, I was going to go see Todd play at the Bearsville Theater in Woodstock. And my wife was going to come with me. But it was right before Christmas, and we have kids, and she was all stressed out with shopping and everything. She said, look, I just can't go. So she came to the studio. So she said, Kate, why don't you go? You and Ralph go. So Kate says, yeah, I'll go. Let's go. So it was interesting to me because Kate came out of the studio, and she's a beautiful, gorgeous rock star woman. And she came over, you know, in her sweats and stuff and, you know, did the song. And then I drove her back to her house. And then I picked her up a few hours later to go to the Todd show. And in those three hours, she transformed into this, into Kate Pearson. And um, she came out, you know, looking like, you know, she just walked out of a magazine ad. She looked amazing. And we went to the show, and uh, we saw Todd. And then we went backstage, and I hung out with Todd. And I mentioned to him about this album. I just kind of told him what I was doing, and, uh, and uh, I told him I'll keep him posted. And then... You know, months later, I emailed him and I said, look, you know, this is what I'm doing. The song's taken shape, uh, and there's a long refrain at the end, and it would be great if you could play an electric guitar solo through the whole thing. So I sent him the email, and uh, and he he wrote right back, like in in 10 minutes, you know. Sure, send it out to me. So I sent him the track, and uh, was waiting for him waiting for him to get it back, and it, it didn't come for a while, and I followed up with another email. He says, oh, man, I'm still on the case. You know, I had problems with my Pro Tools rig, and uh, and then, uh, you know, a couple weeks later, I got the track back. He emailed it back to me. It was the day before we were having a listening party for the record in Woodstock, and I put it into the track. When I first put it up, I was just blown away by it, and I could tell 
it goes on. It's a long solo at the end. And I could tell that Todd just didn't, you know, plug in and knock it off in two minutes. You know, I really, you know, I could tell he took his time and really composed and plotted out a really brilliant uh, guitar whole section there. And then after that, I got John Ashton to play his real ethereal type guitar right up to the point where Todd Rundgren comes in. So the beginning of the song has John Ashton from Psychedelic Furs playing electric guitar. And then after that, Todd comes in at the end and wails through the whole end, uh, end portion. Well, then why don't we play it so everyone can, can hear this really great song off of Somewhere Else. This is called Starman, and we'll be back in about four and a half minutes. Didn't know what time it was, the lights were low I leaned back on my radio Some cat was laying down some rock and roll All I saw he said Then the loud sound didn't seem to fade Came back like a slow voice on a wave of fish
And there you have it, Starman um, <laughs> Somewhere Else, which you can find on Amazon.com or 429records.com. Is that their website? Yeah, 429records.com. You could, you could get there. And I'd like to dedicate that song tonight to Phil Mansfield and Barbara Mansfield, Killian's parents who suffered this terrible tragedy using, losing their beautiful boy. And uh, Killian is truly our star man. Uh, he was an awesome kid, and I hope that this record uh, just carries on. I've gotten a lot of calls from all over the country, all over the world, actually. People tell me how much they, they enjoy this record, and you know, Killian could be heard on every track. He was playing slide ukulele and ukulele on that track and singing back of vocals. And, uh, was he the he one was, that said, said, let the children boogie? No, that was his, that was his sister, Callie. Oh, okay. Killian, Killian emailed me, and he wanted Lucia and Callie to sing the song together at the same time, but they, they're both great kids and awesome talents, but their vibe is really different. Lucia's, like, really serious when she's in the studio, and Callie's, like, having a good time, and I knew together it wouldn't be a good combination, so I did Lucia first, and then I brought Callie over and had her do her part with, with myself and her mom, Barbara, coaching her along, and, uh, and she did great stuff uh, on there. And uh, we had a fun time. It's great having children's voices on this record or this particular song on the record. I, since it's actually you know about a young boy, uh, it, that that just really is very touching. That he would want to have young voices on there. I like that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what he wanted for the song. Ukulele vibe and have it be really fun and kid-like and, and joyous and and it is a very joy this version is a very joyous version of the song you know it's uh you know sometimes you set out to do something and you don't get it and this time uh you know we got it got, it is got, it is a little different than David Bowie's version did did I not read somewhere that David Bowie actually has heard that version uh I'm no I haven't heard that I don't know I think I read that somewhere and then. Uh-huh. Liked it so. Hmm. Well, okay, cool. if they made it up, who cares? It's a great comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, we we're still sort of talking about what you're doing currently. We we still need to get to the past though. But I want to I want to talk to you just a short while about a CD, a children's CD, in fact, called what's it called? Uh, Opposites by Ralph and Ralph. Ralph and Ralph, yeah, there's actually more than one Ralph in the world besides me. And the other Ralph is uh, my old buddy who, uh, whose name is Ralph Carney, who's a brilliant multi-instrumentalist on horns and woodwinds. And uh, Ralph and I were in a band together years ago called Pinui, which some people may know of. Um, and uh, we've been buddies ever since. And we've done a lot of different things over the years. And this record actually would not have happened without Todd in a funny way, because Todd was good friends with Hal Wilner, who's another music producer. And uh, Hal lived in New York years ago. And he had this, uh, got this gig to do music for this kid show called Encyclopedia. It was co-produced by Sesame Street and HBO. And he brought Ralph Carney in to do it with another composer, and it just wasn't working out. And then Hal and Ralph thought of me, so I went down the city, and then Ralph and I collaborated on the, the music, the, the scoring for 26 episodes for this HBO show, and we did it. Uh, so if it wasn't for the Todd connection, I wouldn't have got that gig. And what happened in that gig is Ralph and I started doing music for kids, 
And this was a number of years ago. And since then, we did different things, different kids' music, mostly instrumental. And this time, decided to do a, a record with, uh, with uh, songs. And so I wrote uh, 14 songs for the record, and I brought in, aside from the two Ralphs, we have two honorary Ralphs, two girls that could be named Ralph. And one is my wife, Katie Taylor, Lignini, and the other is Abba Rowland. Uh, and so Katie and I live here in Woodstock. Abba lives in, San, uh, Abba, Abba lives in L.A., and Ralph lives in San Francisco. So uh, I did the record over the course of a year. And what I envision is, you know, I always loved bands like the band and the Beatles where there were a number of lead singers and they all kind of interwove their voices around each other and some sang lead, some sang backup and they switched around. And that's what this record is like. And it's, it's a record for kids. Uh, it, I feel it's very different than a lot of uh, kids' records that I've heard because I have kids, so I've listened to pretty much everything. Uh, sonically, there's a lot of instruments on it between Ralph and I. We cover a lot of different instruments, and there's all real instruments. There's no synthesizers or anything. It's all strings and horns and woodwinds and everything you could think of. There's a lot of beautiful vocals. And lyrically, what I set out to do is I felt like, uh, you know, I always feel the lyrics are the most important part of the song. I know Todd felt like that, too, whenever he produced an artist. That was the thing he focused on with the artist, getting the lyrics up to snuff. And I felt like when I write songs for grown-ups, I don't write songs about stuff that grown-ups like, like, you know, whatever, BMWs or fine wine or something. But I saw a lot of kids' songs that were written about, you know, stuff that kids like, you know, rubber ducks and fire trucks and stuff like that. And my kids love those songs. They're great kids' songs. But I thought, you know, kids have emotional baggage too. <laughs> so why not write songs for kids that were about stuff that's going on in their head, stuff that they're feeling about, stuff that they're upset about, you know, how do they feel when their mom drags them around all day looking for shoes for herself? You know, how, how do they feel? Or when they're feeling blobby? When they're feeling blobby and, and out of it and, and like they have no friends and no one likes them. Uh, you know, all these different situations happen with kids. Well, how do they feel? How does a kid feel when his mom's cooking spaghetti in the pot he saw his sister throw up in the night before, you know? <laughs> these are all issues I deal with on this record. And, uh, but I wanted to do it in a really fun way that would make kids laugh and make parents laugh. And there's a lot of ear candy there, and there's a lot of different layers. And I hope when people hear it, they'll, every time they hear it, they'll hear a different thing pop out, a different instrument or a different funny line. And uh, uh, we think it's a really cool record. And today's the day on your show that I'm announcing the release because it's officially released tomorrow. And uh, our, our website just went up today. And, uh, and it's on my kids' record label that I started with my wife. The label's name is Leg Nene Records, L-E-G-K-N-E-E-K-N-E-E -E 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 Records. And we have a website up for legneerecords.com and a website for ralphandraffmusic.com, ralphandraffmusic.com, because there's two accountants in Idaho, I think, that have the domain name Ralph and Ralph. <laughs> so we're Ralph and Ralph Music. Uh, the, the CD is available on that website. It's also available on the CD Baby and for download on Dick Stations, on iTunes, and it's all come out today. We're very, very excited about it. And um, well, that's exciting. I, I did not realize that we would be the uh, the what do you call it the world premiere tonight. <laughs> 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 I, I I do have a couple of clips.
from this CD, and uh, the CD is called Opposites. It's mm-hmm. by Ralph and Ralph, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know why, but I really connected with this first song. Um, it's called Feeling Blobby. Uh-huh. <laughs> because he, that's what that's when we all sing together, pretty much. It's cute. It's it's really cute. But you know what? It doesn't talk down to children at all. Oh no, I didn't, didn't want to do that on the whole record. I wanted kids to feel empowered, you know. But I just wanted them to feel like if they have some issues, that it's cool. Everyone does, you know, yeah. in a fun way. And I'm gonna start singing "Feeling Blobby" now when I'm feeling blobby. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Why don't we play about a minute of this, and then we'll. Okay. we'll about opposites after that. Great. The world is for people who are basically the same. Lots of faces, lots of names. Talk to you this record. So um, uh, a couple of months ago, I, I, I emailed him all the uh, all the songs, and uh, he was gracious enough to come back with a uh, with a mini review for it, which I could read to you. Uh, so Todd writes uh, as a mini review for the Ralph and Ralph Opposite album. He writes, uh, "I'm so jealous. Now I want to make music for kids. This takes me back to a happy to happier times working in Pee Wee's Playhouse. The Ralphs have struck a nerve. Funny bone, I think." And that's by Todd. And then Kate Pearson from B52s did a mini-review. She said, a fab and delicious frolic to fun town for music-loving kids and their moms and dads. This cradle full of quirky and confectious melodies will rock you. Nice. (laughs) Fabulous. Well, do you guys plan to to do a tour or do a live show with these songs? Yeah, we will be doing some shows probably this summer. And uh, we'll probably do some stuff... uh, in this area, New York area, and some stuff out in the California, L.A., San Francisco area. So that's all in the works. And, uh, you know, we're excited to do it. It's, it's fun playing uh, for kids. My, my wife's been uh, playing uh, with this uh, guy called uh, Uncle Rock, who's Robert Burke Warren, a good friend of ours, and he's got a band called Uncle Rock and the Playthings, and he's a, a brilliant kids artist, and my wife's been playing with him for a couple of years, and it's just fun. It's very interesting. The shows are, you know, as a, a lifelong musician, you used to play in clubs where you play till 4 in the morning. Kid shows, you know, you do them at 12, and you're done about 12.35 in the afternoon. 
it's uh, it's a whole different it's a whole different time of day and a whole different vibe. Um, but it's fun to see families out with their kids doing stuff. And uh, you know, there's nothing like music and live musicians for kids. I think a lot of kids are growing up not hearing as much live music as uh, we all did when we grew, we grew up. Even when people go to weddings nowadays, they hear a DJ. They don't hear musicians as much. There's not as much music in the clubs and all. And uh, so it's a fun it's a fun audience. And uh, so my wife got, I got inspired and we started a record label and we have a number of other records on the fire that you guys will hear, be hearing about in the future. And, uh, and we're looking if, uh, you know, there's some talented kids artists out there. You could uh, send stuff our way to listen to. There you go. And that would be to Leg Knee Knee Records? Is, is that right. You, yes. We could uh, reach us at hello at Leg Knee Records, uh, L-E-G-K-N-E-E-K-N-E-E records.com. You know, it's funny when you when you sent me some of your resume. I, it was right when I was thinking, how do you pronounce this guy's last name? <laughs> well, if you're Italian, you know, like lasagna, signorita, the the G and the N together, officially in Italian, make a Y sound. So the way you're supposed to pronounce the name is Lenini. It makes like a Y. Lenini. Yeah. Lenini. So I had a high school teacher, uh, his name was Reno Tancredi, my algebra teacher, a trigonometry teacher, and he used to get upset because people would pronounce my name Lignini and go, Lignini, Lignini. But uh, my grandparent, my grandfather came over from Italy when he was 16. As soon as he got to America, he started pronouncing it Lignini. So uh, I, I often pronounce it Lignini, but uh, it ends up being Lignini, and that's why we fooled around with the spelling and named the record company Lignini Records. Got it, got it. <laughs> Okay, tell us a little bit about the title track from this album. It's called Opposites. How did uh, that come about? Is that supposed to be educational about? or something? <laughs> that was one of the, the, the last songs that I wrote for the record as it, as it developed. But, yeah, I think any record, you know, just like Killian's record or this record, it kind of morphs as you go along. You have a certain vision and you keep adding material as you go along. I wanted a duet with me and Ralph Carney, basically. So Ralph and I are very different. We were in a band together. We toured together. Uh, you know, he's a big guy. I'm a little guy. I like to eat, you know, cold pasta and ravioli for breakfast. I was on a tour with him where he just pretty much ate green grapes and, you know, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, he doesn't really like to drive a car. Uh, you know, there's, there's so many differences between us. But we're, like, great friends and we have this unique interaction when we when we play together that, you know, we, it, it just really clicks together. And I know I can send him a track and I'll get back stuff that is just amazing. And he knows I'll send him stuff that inspire him to play cool things on it. So anyway, I wrote this song, Opposites, and it's really kind of like, you know, I was listen, listening to it the other day and it was kind of seems like, uh, I thought, gee, we're kind of like the, the kids' version of the Smothers Brothers, because at the end of the song, we start arguing with each other, like they used to do, you know, Mom always liked you best kind of thing. And uh, so we're talking about all the things that are opposite in the world, and then in, in, the, in the refrain, I sing, uh, you know, sometimes opposites attract, uh, and how it makes two people come together to make things better. Excellent. Good introduction. Okay, everybody, this is about a minute and a half of a song called Opposites from an album called Opposites by Ralph and Ralph. We'll see you in about a minute and a half. Oh, the opposite of words. 
opposite of opposite is the same. Sometimes opposites attract. That means come together. And opposite can interact to make each other We. You mean us? That doesn't rhyme. Ah, rhymes mime. Even the opposite of the opposite of you is me. <laughs> is that the part you were talking about with the argument? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the opposite of the opposite of the opposite of the opposite of you <laughs> is still me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's really cute, and 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 it's done in a childlike way, but it it doesn't talk down to them. It it actually teaches a lesson. But in a fun way, you know. Maybe they don't know what opposites are. <laughs> what is what is your your target age group that you're going for? Well, you know, it's really interesting because you know I've watched my kids. I have a, a, a seven year old and a twelve year old, and I've watched them go through, you know, listening to kids' music. And it seems like with a lot of the kids' records, they kind of lose it for it. Maybe around you know, six, seven years old. But what I'm finding with these songs is that the younger kids like it, but it also goes up into a higher age because one of the songs on the record, Beat of Me, I performed at my daughter's school with the chorus, and they were all like fifth and sixth graders, and a number of them used that song to sing to audition for the all-county chorus. So they were really attracted with that particular song that's that's on the record. So I'm hoping it goes up a little bit in ages, but but really, I have a lot of adults tell me they like the record, and they just listen to it in the car for themselves, which a lot of adults wouldn't listen to a lot of children's record in the car without the kids in the car. But it's really, there's some fun stuff on there for grown-ups. The last song on the record is a, a lullaby that my wife sings, and you can hear in her voice the, the vibe of the song is that the kid's not falling asleep, but she's so exhausted from being a parent that she's falling asleep before the kids get even beginning to get tired. And uh, so there's stuff on there for moms and dads, uh, too. And uh, it's, it's a fun thing. I, I hope people really enjoy it. And they can check it out on our websites. And I just want to quickly thank Kevin Masters and Neil Eisenberg uh, for doing our websites so quickly and getting everything up there today. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I wish you guys a lot of luck with uh, any kind of tour that you put together this summer. I I have a personal friend who is a children's entertainer named Eddie Coker, and he has he has made a great living out of being a children's entertainer. So maybe you guys can do that too. Yeah, it's uh, you know doing music for kids. There's a lot worse things you could be doing, right? You know, it's good. It's <laughs> yeah. a good vibe thing. Were you were you you involved with so many of Todd's stuff? Were you involved in the Pee Wee Harmon stuff? And the what? The Pee Wee Harmon stuff that he did. Were you involved in that uh, at all? Yeah, I was involved through that. Uh, Todd did a, a number of shows. I, I thought that I always thought that was a great show, and I'm really happy to see uh, Paul Rubens making a, a serious comeback lately. He's uh, he's got a show, a, a live show in L.A. and I hear he's bringing it to New York. I've seen him a lot on TV recently, 
And um, yeah, I think Todd had a lot of fun doing that. Uh, the the music was uh, was brilliant, and it was similar to the music he carried on when he did Dumb and Dumber, the score for that. <laughs> yeah. Which you know that and uh, and I remember you know it's very it's very rare that you read a review for a movie and they mention the score you know because the rule of thumb for a film composer is that if the score is really good, like no one's really supposed to notice it that much. It's just there to support the dialogue and the emotion. But what Todd did with that score was so outrageous and so great that every review I read of that movie mentioned, you know, in the score by Todd Rundgren and really, you know, given prompts to the, uh, prompts to the, the score. And I think Todd had fun, you know, doing that as well. And that was around the time he was doing, you know, he did the Michael Mann uh, show for a while. He did Peavy's Playhouse and uh, he did Dumb and Dumber. So every now and again, he would get a, a TV show or, a, you know, a film that he would do. And, you know, it was, it, was, it was fun watching him do it. And, uh, you know, uh, I think as a producer, engineer, it's nice to do a lot of different things. And that, that's certainly a whole different vibe than, you know, producing a band like XTC or somebody, you know, which, is, which you're in a different head. And you're doing kid music for Pee Wee Harmon. That's a totally different, uh, totally different thing to do. Yeah, it's interesting though, that Todd seems to get more attention than most people about producing albums for some reason. Like, I, I couldn't tell you most producers of an album, but when he does one, it seems to be news. Like, even the, the brand-new New York Dolls, all the press release, you know, mentioned that Todd was doing it and that Todd did the first one, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Well, you know, you have to understand, Todd's also, you know, no, a noted, brilliant artist in his own right. So there aren't a lot of artists that, are, you know, have their own solo career in a band like Utopia and then also are producing records for a whole variety of other other people. You know, that that doesn't happen that often, you know, that, that someone does all that stuff. And and that's really what Todd's all about, you know. To me, uh to me he's just the epitome of a true artist. And he I never saw him uh compromise anything for for the art. No. That's true. It didn't matter what he was offered or deals or money or, or anything. I've never seen, I never saw Todd stray from doing what he had in his head that he wanted to do as an artist. And, you know, it's rare that this day and age that people can, can pull that off and, and stay there. Because there's some amazing things about Todd compared to other producers that I saw. And, I, and I've worked with a lot of producers as a session player and, and doing different things in the studio. Todd, um, he, he was, he, well, you produce a record anyway. You, you're very, you have to be a very confident person because you have to make decisions. But what Todd was able to do, and I learned a lot from, he was able to make decisions very quickly and be so sure for him that they were the right decision where a lot of producers would, uh, you know, do a bunch of stuff and they'd listen to it for days and decide which track they liked. And, and Todd would just listen to it and decide. And he would erase the stuff he didn't like because you're using 24-track tape at the time. You couldn't keep, you know, 200 tracks like you could do now, nowadays in digital recording. Uh, I remember one time on the Meatloaf Bad Out of Hell 2 record, Jim Steinman came to the studio and they did a bunch of vocal takes and Jim wanted me to make him a cassette of all the takes so he could go listen to it over the weekend in his car and decide which ones, you know, and tell Todd Monday which ones he like. And, and then but Todd saying, what, what are you going to do that for? Let's, let's just decide right now. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and and it's right, and it's true. That that that's that's the way you should do it. You know, your your immediate reaction. I know when I hear people's songs for the first time, if I'm producing something, my first reaction to the song is the one that I feel is true to me. After you hear a song ten times, you have a different reaction. You're kind of used to it. You don't know what that reaction is the first time you would hear it on the radio, the first time you hear it. And Todd went by his gut musical instincts all the time, and and he was very aggressive and fearless the way he did things. And that was really brilliant. And I didn't really see that quality and to that degree in anyone else that I've ever ever work with, you know? Yeah, that's why, you know, he's got that reputation of being able to do things faster than a lot of them. But, well, you know, he, um, he, but, but not in a bad way. It was like, no. you know, if he if he took, you know, twice as long, it, he when he when he got to the point where he felt it was right, it was right, and it didn't matter whether it took an hour or it took a week or it took a month. I mean, he knew what, he knew when it was done. Like a, like a chef knows when the meal is done. You could cook it for another three days. It doesn't mean it's going to be better or anything. It just means... You know, it's done when it's done. And as a producer, you decide when it's done, whether it captures the vision that you had in your head for the the record of the song as you uh, as you did it, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, also, you know, people said Todd worked fast, but, you know, Todd worked around the clock. I mean, he didn't just put in two hours a day and call it a day. I mean, he got up in the morning, walked down the hill, you know, got in the control room, and he worked all day into the night, and he worked late into the night, and he... You know, he was never fussy about anything. Uh, you know, like some sessions I've been on, people take a dinner break and they needed this wine from here and this fish flown in from here. And, you know, I tell Todd often, you know, do you got the band will take a dinner break? And I'd say, Todd, you know, you want to get something to eat? I'm going to go to town. should bring you back some takeout. He said, oh, no, I'm, I'm okay. You go up to his house. And I go up there two hours later and I see he'd eaten a can of Pepperidge Farm uh, soup, you know, a bunch of crustle soup, you know. A piece of bread with some cheese nothing on it, and yeah, you know, he wasn't a fussy guy. You know, he just he just worked. He and uh, he worked till he was tired, and then chilled out watching his uh, big video screen in his house, and uh, and got up the next day and kept doing it till whatever he was working on was done. He had extreme focus to do something, and he wasn't distracted by other stuff. So if people say he worked fast. Well, yeah, maybe in a time frame he worked fast, but the time he spent in was very very focused and diligent at, at, at any given moment. I got you. Maybe that's how he stayed so skinny. <laughs> <laughs> well, wow. he was into having a good meal. He was into having a good meal once in a while, going out for sushi or something, but he wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, uh, you know, he wasn't obsessed with uh, food. Sometimes I would bring a sandwich up there because I knew he was hungry. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd go up there and start eating one half and say, Todd, you want this other half? And, you know, then he would eat it, you know. But if I didn't do that, he probably wouldn't eat until I, you know, went up, went up to the house, you know. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And what before he came before he came, you know, from when he was living out out west and he would come to do stuff, you know, before he came, you know, we would stock his fridge, you know, we would go to the, the Grand Union in town, we knew all the, the stuff that he liked and we would load up his fridge and we would hope that there was enough stuff in there for for a couple of weeks. <laughs> that was nice, Eddie. Well hey, we've got a call from America nine one four, we're gonna to get to it in just a minute, but I gotta ask you a question real quick before we get to that. Uh, while we're on this subject of producing it. Andy Partridge was on our show a couple of years ago, and he said that Todd was a good producer but not a good engineer, which, you know, I think he was just trying to, to to concede a little bit that he was wrong when he originally got mad at Todd. But anyway, that's what he said. And I, I, for the folks that don't really know, I'm one of them. What's, the, what's kind of the difference in those two jobs? Why would Why would somebody say you're a good producer but not a good engineer? What are some of the differences? 
Well, I mean, it's two different skills. You know, there there are a number of producers that are engineer producers, and there are a number of great producers who don't engineer that hire their engineer or have the engineer that they work with, and they don't touch the dials for the most part. Uh, just like there are a number of producers who became producers from being engineers from that school, and there are a number of producers that became producers from being musicians. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? There's some people who engineered and became producers, and they may not know that much about music. So, you know, if they hear a chord that sounds funny, they'll say, yeah, that chord sounds a little funny. You guys in the band figure out what's going on there. Whereas a producer like Todd or Nile Rogers or me that are musicians, we could say, well, that chord's not sounding right because you're playing a C sharp and the bass player's playing a C, and, you know, you have to change your note here. The musician can think in, in those terms, you know. But uh, so Todd engineered and produced, I think, and I do that too now, and I think what that does, it makes you very connected to everything because you're doing everything on the record. You know, you're not telling your engineer, could you tweak this guitar sound and make the kick drum beefier, and then you go have lunch and you come back and you hear what the guy did. I mean, you know every nook and cranny of what's going on. Uh, Todd, as an engineer, you know, I think Todd, I think you could give Todd like a, you know, four-track tape recorder and a, a decent mic, and, and he'll make a great record. You know, it's not really about about gear. And he was never a gear obsessed. He wasn't a guy that went to the you know, AES trade shows and looked around at all the new gear and stuff. Occasionally he would tell, tell me, Ralph, could you buy this, uh, you know, Eventide Harmonizer or something, or I'd hear about something, or most of the time he would get something, I think, if he tried it in another studio and actually had hands-on experience and liked it, and, you know, we brought it into the studio. Occasionally I'd bring some gear I'd hear about into the studio. I could get it from the try, and we'd check it out, you know. But uh, it all goes hand in hand. I mean, that Todd did both, and... Uh, you know, it was interesting with the XTC album because XTC came over. They stayed in the uh, Todd's guest house. And the situation there was Todd's house was on top of the hill. Down the bottom of the hill was the studio. And just a little bit beyond that was this white guest house, a beautiful old house that was renovated. And the, what we would do, we would put the bands there. For the most part, they would stay right there. So Todd had to walk down the hill. The bands had to walk up the hill. We would rent a, a couple of cars from them uh, for a while. We had two custom vans that we would let the bands use, and uh, and that's the way you know everything worked there. Uh, when XTC guys came, you know they were all excited to be working with Todd, and you know I was there every day in the studio with them. I never witnessed any altercation between Todd and Andy, and in fact, a number of times. They all came over to our house for dinner, you know, after work, and uh, the XCC guys and Todd and just hanging out and having laughs and, you know, jamming a little, strumming acoustic guitars. And there was no, you know, the way it was played up in the press was that there was a big war going on. And uh, I didn't see any of that. Uh, I think the album sounds brilliant. And when you listen to that album today, it's, uh, I think it's an unbelievable album. Prairie Prince played amazing drums on it. They did a string score in a lot of songs, and uh, and I think in retrospect, uh, Andy, uh, you know, admitted that he really liked the album. I think what happened, you know, he just had really two strong personalities. But I do remember Todd saying to Andy was that I think what was going on. Andy was very dominant over the other two guys in the band, and at one point, I remember Todd saying to him, "Look, Andy, I I want to do an XTC album, not an Andy Partridge album." You know, this is an XTC album. I think Todd felt like the other guys who were brilliant musicians were 
you know, getting lost in the crowd a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, everything was totally cool uh, with that record. I have an interesting aside with that record. When the record was done, uh, Mary Lou and I were driving it down uh, to Sterling Sound to get mastered. So we had the two-track mixes. And we only had one two-track machine at the studio, and it was before that player. So there were no safety copy of the master. That was the only, that was the only existent uh, master of the record. And that was before automation on consoles. At least we didn't have it at Todd's studio. So once you changed the board, the mix was gone. So this was the only copy. So we're driving down to the city on Route 17 in one of Todd's vans, and we just stopped at McDonald's, and we got milkshakes and all this stuff. And five minutes later, we get rear-ended by a tractor trailer. And then he pushed us forward, and we hooked on to another tractor trailer that was alongside of us. The van got stuck to that, and it rammed us into the car in front of us. So it was like a really bad crash. And the milkshakes exploded, and they spilled all over the box with the XPC master in it, right? (laughs) Uh Also, in the back of the van was, uh, I believe it was like a 32-track Mitsubishi digital machine that we had used. So that was getting returned to the, you know, the place we rented it from. So that was in the back of the van. So we had a car crash. We go to the, we go to the um, hospital in the ambulance because we didn't know if we were banged up enough or, or not. And we called Chris Anderson, uh, who was uh, Todd's production manager at the time, and he came down and got us. And we had to like, you know, I, I cleaned off the box of the tape and hoped that. Uh, Nothing got in there, and, and, the, and the tape was actually okay, which was great. And Chris brought it down to uh, to Sterling the next day, and we got it massive. But that album could have uh, maybe never existed. And yeah, I, 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 was, I was I was happy because Jasmine Zayette sang on Dear God, mm-hmm. and as off, very often Todd would just say to me, you know, could you get me a bass player and drum player tomorrow? You know, he kind of left it up to me. Who got? Oh, he said, can you get me a little kid? You know, we need a little. We need a little boy to sing the beginning and end of this record. And I knew that Jasmine, even though she was a little girl, had a great voice. And, you know, little kids sound the same boy and girl. So I got Jasmine up there, and Jasmine just knocked that off in, like, three takes. And, oh, that, uh, was her, that was her in, like, Dear God? That's her singing the beginning and end of Dear God, yeah. Awesome. And she was like... She was my friend Joe Vayette's uh, daughter, who's grown up now. She has a few kids, but uh, and Joe's a musician himself and a guitar maker in the area, and uh, we're old good buddies. And I was glad I was able to get Jasmine on that. And she was very thrilled at the time to do it, and she's still very thrilled to be on that record. It's a classic right. record. Yeah. And I, I know they had a fight to keep that song on the record. The record company thought it was controversial, and blah 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 blah. But uh, it's a great song. I think Todd did a a brilliant job on that record, and I and I, I think in retrospect, Andy probably feels differently when he looks back at his career. Yeah, he said it was good now. He said it on that record producer show in the U.K. that was on recently and, and said that it was really good. But we got a call from Ohio, I believe. Here you go, 330, you're with us. No, is this me? Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, my name is Michael Aylward. And I'm, uh, uh, I was in a band with Ralph for a long, long time. I started in New York. <laughs> From from Tin Huey, and um, and you do you realize that Ron that, that Ralph baked Todd Rundgren's tapes? Oh right! In a microwave oven. What? <laughs> All of Todd's tapes. <laughs> well, here's, hey Michael, how you doing? Because <laughs> you realize you have to bake tapes. To get them to to release themselves. 
what what happened what happened was this. We had all these tapes in the studio. Todd's studio wasn't that big and we didn't have a the perfect, you know, air controlled place to store the tapes. Um it, we had them all but up Ralph on the called me and asked me how to do it. <laughs> he had no fucking idea. <laughs> Michael, don't curse. But he's like Michael no, Michael not a kid's show What anymore. should I do? <laughs> well, what happened was we couldn't play the tapes because they were, they were all from a batch of old Ampex tapes that they had a problem with the binder on the tape that glued the uh, metallic particles to the actual cellophane, whatever it was, tape. And there was a period of making tape where it was a bad batch. What happened over time when it was exposed to heat, the binder shedded when you put it on a tape machine and actually coagulated on the heads where you couldn't play the tape because it made this gunky friction. So Right, now how do you know to, this? Well, because <laughs> I'm an expert on it now. Uh, what happened oh, okay. Was, what, happened was, we gonna, what happened was we wanted to make digital copies of all Todd's old multi-track tapes. We wanted to no, I know that. So right. what, happened was, what happened was we... Uh, we needed to bake the tape, so I, Todd asked me to figure out how to do it, so I called Ampex, who offered to do it for us, but there were so many tapes, and this is the Todd's, Todd's pretty much vibe came into play. He said, Ralph, let's just do it ourselves. So he said, figure out how to do it, and we'll, I'll buy the ovens, and we did it. So I called the guy from Ampex. He told me the exact convection oven that he used. We bought a couple of those. <laughs> I got the I got the candy thermometer to put on the tapes, and I knew how to space them. And I spent pretty much the summer baking all of Todd's tapes. Two of them fit in the oven at a time, and when they were baked, they were hot to the touch. They were about 125 degrees. You had to do it for eight hours. Okay. Tapes. So wait. And then you could put it right on the machine and do a digital dub of the tape right then and there. So I did all of Todd's tapes, which was amazing. Me listening to. You know, hello, it's me, and all all is wonderful. I know, I know, I know, I know. I used to, I used to do that. So, uh, so yeah, you're the you're the guy that did it. Yeah, I ended up doing the tapes. I put them all on digital on ADAS. We have three days. Congratulations! And uh, <laughs> and then you know, Todd took them all with him, and uh, you know, he's got them. Oh my God! This time that yeah. he transferred them to uh, that he transferred them into a uh, you know a hard drive somewhere to archive them. Yeah. But it's really great yep. just putting the tapes on and putting the faders up and listening to all the, the tracks. And I think one time I might have thrown in a cassette and um, and just put a board mix down of, of one of the songs. I can't remember what it was. But, you know, my favorite Todd song is a song called Parallel Lines, which Todd did for uh, play up against it. And the, the version Todd recorded was with a whole band with a lot of backup singers and everything. But there's a demo version that Todd did that I, I think is amazing. And uh, I think it's a really cool song. I don't know if many people have heard it, uh, that version of it, with Todd just singing the song, very simple demo. Uh, it's beautiful. And I think that's, uh, to me, that's that's my favorite Todd song of all time. Wow. So you take that one too, huh? That, that's fabulous that you helped Ralph do that. Yeah, my wife and I, uh, I was the assistant art director on Teptag also. Ah, nice. Yes, yeah, so with Michael, Michael Green. The, Michael worked at the video studio for getting that, that project together, which, uh, you know, that, that what he means is that never, uh, the ever-popular tortured artist effect, which was for the BBC, yes. how did they show 
And uh, it was interesting because we had a crew there, and Todd would have all these ideas he wanted to do, and we would try to get it all together. And, and some things clicked in place, and some things were many disasters, but we we got through it and got everything uh, everything yeah. pretty much done. And, and you know what? You know what? You guys are just fucking amazing. All the <laughs> all the shit you got on Todd. I mean, because we lived with him, you know. <laughs> I mean, we live with Todd from day to day, but but now and you got my friend Ralph. Ralph, well, Ralph was in my band for for four years. We well, moved from so Akron to Woodstock and did Tim Huey up there. Thanks so much you for know. calling in, Michael. We got a bunch of people on the line too. Yeah, uh, did you know you know adios, Michael. Adios, dude. Nice Throw Ralph. Oh, Thanks, man. Hey, hey, Ralph. Did he say you were from Akron originally? No, the Tinuli band that I was in, they're all from Akron, and I hooked up with them later on. They were a band that got signed by Warner Brothers right around the time that Devo got signed, and Akron at that time was like the cool place, like Seattle was a number of years ago. The record companies were going in there and signing all these bands. So Tinuli got a, a big record deal and still has a strong cult following, uh, and uh, Harvey Gold, uh, pretty much the leader of the band with Michael, they keep, they've kept it all going, and... Um, old buddies with all of them, and that's how I met Ralph Carney through that. But they were originally from Akron. They all went to high school with Chrissy Hines. And, uh, Akron was and, a cool uh, town last year. We love Akron. Yeah, Akron's, <laughs> on up, Akron's on an upswing. So uh, yeah. when I first went there years ago, we did some gigs. I was like, oh, my God, you know. But I was there recently to play uh, at, a, at a benefit that we were playing on the bill with Chrissy Hines and Jerry Lewis and to try to save this old theater there. And it's a really cool town now. It's really yeah. cool. Like Akron Theater. What's that? Uh, was it the Akron Civic Theater? Yeah, the Akron Civic Theater. A couple of years ago, they were. I think they were gonna. They needed to raise money to keep the thing open, and Chrissy Hine organized this whole uh, this whole benefit and uh, asked. Uh, it was like a hybrid version of Tim Uly that with Chris Butler and Harvey Gold uh, that that we played. You know, that opened up for her and and Jerry right. Lewis, who was uh, who they kind of walked out. He's really old now. I put him at the piano, and he just kind of rocked the house down. I don't know if he knew where he was or anything, but he was really brilliant. <laughs> I'll tell you what. That's awesome. And and uh, a lot of Todd fans thank you for playing in that benefit because it allowed uh, Doug and I, actually, as Rungrin Radio, to put on some Todd Awatch shows there last Oh, September. cool. Yeah, the full album, September uh, 6th and 7th. But we got a caller from 518. You're with us. Hello. Hey, Ralph, it's me, Zane, getting ready for bed, but I just wanted to say hi. Great listening to you on the radio, and I can't wait to see you on Thursday. <laughs> Zane is one of my guitar students. He's, uh, how old are you, Zane? Uh, Twelve. Uh, Twelve, right? Yeah. Zane is a brilliant, a brilliant, he's he's like the most talented kid I've ever taught an instrument to. He He's like, he could play like bluegrass fiddle tunes on a guitar, wow. he's He's just like a really – he, he just goes home and practices all day. He's an amazing kid. Thank and, you. Uh, love you, Zane, man. Talk love to you, Ralph. <laughs> See you Thursday. Thank you. Bye. 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 So that's, Bye. that's my that's my fan fan club, my old yeah. friend from Tim Uly, who's obviously very drunk, and uh, and, a, and a 12-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got another caller that uh, uh, you probably don't know. Let's see if I can get that. I think it's Chris. Chris, you with us? Yeah, hey, how you doing? Hey, what's up, man? 
Well, I was curious. You were talking about uh, listening to all these tapes, you know, mm-hmm. listening to all these multitracks, and I'm curious about Todd, how Todd produced, you know, how he recorded the multitrack. Um, did he go in and put EQ on the uh, on the tapes? I mean, how did you just put the faders up and it worked, or or was there a lot of stuff that he'd do on the board that uh, that wouldn't mean, be there? You mean when we archive them? Well, I mean, when you were listening to the multitracks. Yeah. Uh, well, when when I transfer them from the multi-track reel-to-reel tape to uh, mm-hmm. to digital medium, I had to uh, to listen through to each song, and I had to adjust the uh, the bias on the multi-track tape machine so that it wouldn't peak out the uh, the digital recorders. Because right. on on tape you could record really hot, and then yeah. but you would hit zero if you went directly. So I would go through. I would listen to the song and track by track. I would step down the multi-track recorder. You use a little screwdriver to do that. Yeah. And um, and I would get each track happening, and then I would record that song, and then I would go to the next song. I did that while Todd, Todd was away while I did did all that. Uh, right. And then I gave him all the tapes when I did it. So it basically was a, a board mix, you know, one-to-one mix um, of all the, all the tracks on each song onto a, a digital medium. And, it, you know, it was something that we should have done, you know, a while before that, but... Uh, you know, we got to it at the time when the, the tapes wouldn't even play anymore. So it was an interesting thing. I think I spent the summer pretty much much doing it. But you know, it was a fun thing to fun thing to do for me, and uh, to just you know, every song comes up on the through the so speakers. I mean, and so what what you've got there? I mean, so you just bring up the faders, and mm-hmm. is it pretty much when you when you've got you know reasonable balance for your monitoring purposes? Mm-hmm. Is that does it resemble your, the final the, the final? Oh. Uh, or does, no, or does he go and do a lot of stuff no, on the you, final you mix down? No, you're mistaken. Archiving, it, archiving a multi-track is not mixing the 24 tracks down to two tracks in stereo. No, no, but I mean you, you would for the purposes of monitoring. You know, uh, if, you, if, you've got, if you've got 24 tracks, you're going to 24 tracks, you had something to – you'd have to do some sort of mix at some point just to monitor. Well, I mean, just when monitor, you're monitoring 24 yeah. tracks at once. Yeah, but th- but that's just for you to hear in the control room. What's really going down yeah. is track one of the sure. the analog is going to track one of digital. So it doesn't really matter yeah. what you did on on the faders. It was that was I bypassed that. It was going direct from the machine to machine. I was just right. listening to it, and I could manipulate the faders just to listen. But it right. wasn't the, the transfer. So the question is, is when you do that, uh, mm-hmm. when you know when you've got just a basic you know a basic mix for your own monitoring purposes, mm-hmm. does that resemble? You know how much do, uh, how much oh, of what, what finally wound up on the on the master tape, you know, on the two track master. How much it, of that was on there originally? How much was burned to the track? I, I think I hear what you're saying now. You, how much you, was made you, in the final mix down? Right, I hear what you're saying now. If you just put all the faders up to zero and listen uh-huh. to the multi track, how much does it resemble it when Todd actually mixed the song many years yeah. before? Yeah. Uh, well. Some of them resembled it a lot, you know. I I think, you know, I I know myself producing stuff, and you know, I think Todd feels that way. I know Bob Clemountain feels this way because I talked about it. If you record something really good and all the parts interact and have their own airspace frequency-wise and interact together, you can just put all the faders up, and it sounds pretty darn good, you know, as a balance. You know, everything's pretty much there that you want to hear. But then you you know to make a record you have to change it from that to uh, you have to EQ things, compress things, and manipulate things and add ambience to make it sound like 
you want. And that's the point where 10 different mixes will do it 10 different ways, depending on that, how they hear it, you know? So I, I could hear that, you know, in a lot of things, Todd did a lot of manipulating to get things to sound like the final original record. And uh, some things, you know, you just put the faders up and, you know, like, hello, it's me, you put the faders up and it sounded, you know, it sounded pretty close to the uh, to the record, you know. Hmm. Very nice. Just goes crazy in the, on, in the mixing stage. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, okay. there's so many variables that you could do. You know, to mm-hmm. you could to, on each song. You know, but uh, okay. like I said, all the stuff when you have a great song and a great vocal, you know, you, you put that up, and that's the essence of the uh, the song. And that's one thing that's taught as a producer. You know, every producer when I worked with Nile Rogers, he was real concerned with the groove of the song because he came from a you know Chic and Sister Sledge and you know, I was real concerned how, you know, from a dance medium. Todd was, I feel, most concerned with the lyrics of the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he would make, you know, the, 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 the right songwriter rewrite things or make suggestions if he felt like the, to him, the, the, the singer connecting emotionally with the song, doing a great vocal and putting it across the lyric. That was the essence of what was going on. He wasn't as concerned with some people of the, the sound of the hi-hat or, yeah. you know, a little, little nuances like like that, that, you know, you know that when people hear it on the radio, it's, it's, uh, you know, they're not going to focus on that. And, and he even, you know, said that, you know, you hear so many songs on the radio, they all sound different. The drums sound different on every song. The bass sounds different. The guitars sound different. The vocals sound different. Everyone does it differently. But what captures you is the song and the singer and uh, what the person's trying to put across. So he really, as an artist himself, he approached an album, I feel, as uh, trying to bring out in the artist that he was producing, what the artist wanted to uh, to do and what they wanted to say as an entity okay. on the record. Well, one other thing, I'm a big, big fan of surround music. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had the chance to hear the surround mix of Liars? No, I that haven't. That was released on DVD audio. Oh, it's uh-huh. amazing. It is. Is it cool? It's my absolute favorite surround uh, recording. And, uh, uh-huh. and it's, it's very – a lot of people – get you know they don't want to go and put stuff in the rears they don't want to do and this is uh <laughs> this is aggressive this is a show off your system kind of thing and of course my dream is to hear a watts in surround uh-huh. you know uh, it's one of those uh it's one of those albums that uh <laughs> that and uh you know healing or initiation and so, you, so of course so, i'm curious what's the state you heard everything you've heard the multi-tracks yeah how possible, how doable <laughs> are they? What, to do into surround sound? Yeah. Well, just for Todd to get to, you know, and Todd has these digital multitracks now. How yeah. doable, uh, you know, if he, if he got a bug and just said, hey, I think I'll, I'll just, uh, you know, spend a while and knock out uh, multitrack recordings, you know, uh, surround sound mixes. Well, you know, whatever Todd, whatever Todd wants to do, yeah. he'll, 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 he can do it. I mean, yeah. he, he'll, he'll just do it if he wants to do that. Uh, um, you know, he can do it. It doesn't seem like something that, you know, well, he's doing it, at the moment. But, you know, look, when you archive stuff, it's for the future, just like the Beatles catalog was yeah. archived, and they were able to go back in and, and you know, remaster stuff, and it, you know, yeah. sounds more like what's coming out today. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, tragically, has yeah. I'm sorry. So, you know, some, some masters for some artists were not archived well, and they – they don't exist anymore, you know. So uh, uh, so you're a Big Todd fan? Big Todd fan and uh, 
uh, probably a resident uh, geek on the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, on the I have technology. a. I have a. I bake, I bake tapes. I baked a few. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, I have a. I have a trivia question for everybody, for all your listeners, and for you guys. Okay, I had twenty four seven access to Todd. You know, I could call him up. You know, when we work on stuff, and you know, whatever, or stop up at the house and just walk in. But there was one hour in the day, in the week, one hour in the week, that he did not want to be bothered. Does anyone know what that hour was in the week? <laughs> I got it. Uh, Do you want to take a guess? Do you want to take a guess? It, it was. It, it was for a certain TV show. Yeah, it was for a certain TV show. But back then, how, what years are you talking about? Oh, I'm talking about 19 during the 80s, like from about 1982. Oh, oh I know this. So, <laughs> <right>. Calm down. <laughs> I think I know this. I'm, it's a guess, but I, I think, think I know it. it. Was it politically incorrect? Uh, no. Oh no. no. Too early. That's too early. Yeah, I would say. I, I, you know, I never would think that this was the show he got really enamored with. But if you called him during this show, he would not be that happy that you called him during the show. It was the only time the whole week that you couldn't, you couldn't call him. And and it was always funny. Something would always come up that night, and you'd say, "Oh, I got to call Todd." And go, "Oh, wait a second. I'll give you a hint. It was Thursday nights. Can't call Todd right now." Hill Street Blues. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Hill Street Blues. That was it. No kidding. Hill Street, you, could not call, you could not call Todd when Hill Street Blues was on. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I did not know that. That's a cool, cool story. <laughs> Hill Street Blues. Man, that's a whole one. The, the other little bit of trivia, trivia I could give you guys that when Todd and Michelle moved everything out to Hawaii, they had a, a big uh, uh, yard sale. Uh, at their house in, in Lake Hill, yeah. and uh, and they had this big waterbed. It was like a, from the 70s, I guess, a big waterbed with a big waterbed mattress. It was the old kind, the big bladder, you know, not mm-hmm. compartmentalized. It was just filled with water. If it ever broke, it would have flooded the whole bedroom. <laughs> the heat wasn't. And they, um, so they were trying to sell the bed, and, um, and no one bought it. So Michelle said over the weekend, if no one buys it, my wife really wanted the bed. She had ideas for it, painted it, fixed it up. It was kind of funky at that time, old, you know, wooden kind of looking with a big, huge headboard, weighed a ton. So anyway, Michelle gave it to my wife, Katie, at the end of the weekend, and we put it in storage in someone's garage for years. And then when we moved, we had room for it, so we took it out, and it was mice had infested it. It was, like, disgusting, the whole thing. <laughs> so we took all the drawers out, sanded them, painted them, you know, primed them, and, um, and then we bought a regular, it was a, a California king-size bed, odd-sized odd mattress, and we got a match, regular mattress, not a water bed, and that's our bed now. In our house is uh, is Todd's old bed from uh, from a like water the bed. Col- well, not anymore wow. water bed, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's too much information, maybe. Hey, y'all, we're about to go into archive. Yeah, we're yeah. to wrap. We got about just a few seconds left, but Ralph, you've been a great guest, and we certainly appreciate all the stories and the trivia, the good stuff. Thank you so much. Uh, I was uh, really happy to come on with you guys and uh you know i've been asked a lot of times to do interviews about todd and i've always refused because you know todd and i are pals and you know he's a very private person and uh you know i didn't want to go talk about this that and the other thing but you know you guys are 
Todd fans and uh, keep this whole thing going, which is wonderful. Well, you're not, you didn't say anything some, bad about him. You just yeah. I have nothing. I have nothing bad to say about Todd. He's a great guy. Uh, he's a very generous man. Uh, I I walked down the street with him in Manhattan when we were in a hurry, and fans would come up, and he'd not only sign an autograph, but he spent time talking to them. And I've never seen him uh, uh, be rude and nasty to, to, to anybody. He's really an awesome guy, and I love him dearly, and uh, I appreciate all the things that he's done, done for me. Well, we appreciate you being on, especially since it's a rare opportunity. Well, Ralph, if we, if we get up to the Woodstock area, we want to meet you. Yep. Well, give me a call. Hello, at, uh, just email me at Ralph at eBoy Music or hello at Magini Records. We'll do it. Okay, Excellent. guys. All right. Thank Cruising you. Man, we'll catch you next Monday with uh, Bill Spooner. Our Tubes guest. Yeah, Bill Spooner next Monday. That's it. That's a wrap, folks. We'll see you next Monday, not Tuesday, next week. All yeah, right, Monday. Thanks. I just want to say hi to my friend Carl. All right. Hi, Carl. And thanks to our special guest. All right. Bye-bye. Here we go. Thanks, guys. Hi everybody, this is Todd Rundgren, and you're listening to RundgrenRadio.com. You are the friend of the crown, my friend. Well, thank you so much for your support.